Hello, and welcome to the June 2015 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legisla- legislative and legal developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a few minutes to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up this month, we are starting with another marriage equality update. Not much to report domestically while we all patiently wait for a Supreme Court ruling uh, by the end of this month, but there was a major development internationally. As the song goes, when Irish hearts are happy, all the world seems bright and gay. Can you tell us what happened in Ireland, Art? Yes, what happened, and uh, the pollsters seem to have correctly anticipated this, uh, by contrast to their poor performance on the British parliamentary elections, uh, an overwhelming majority of uh, voters in the Republic of Ireland approved a constitutional amendment which states marriage may be contracted in accordance with law by two persons without distinction as to their sex. So uh, Ireland becomes the first country in the world by popular vote to establish the right of same-sex marriage. Uh, 62% of the voters voted yes uh, after all the votes were counted and uh, discarded ballots were eliminated. And out of the 43 election districts in the country, the amendment carried 42. And in the one outlier district, it got almost 49% of the vote. So this was clearly uh, a major, major endorsement for marriage equality, but it didn't come entirely out of the blue. And as we reported in the June issue of Law Notes, uh, there is a history of gradual progress in the Republic of Ireland on gay issues. Uh, Ireland became independent as a republic in 1922. Prior to that time, it had a version of the British sodomy law, which it kept in effect uh, after becoming independent. And it was only after the European Court of Human Rights ruled that Ireland was violating the rights of its gay citizens by penalizing gay sex that the parliament finally agreed in 1993 to decriminalize private consensual gay sex. That's uh, decades after it uh, started to be decriminalized in other Western countries. But, of course, well before the U.S. Supreme Court, only a decade later, uh, ruled that sodomy laws were unconstitutional in the United States. But in any event, Ireland outlawed anti-gay employment discrimination in 1998, although it left in a big religious exemption. And since many, many institutions in Ireland are run by the Catholic Church, that means the anti-discrimination ban didn't cover a whole lot of people. But on the other hand... uh, It uh, adopted an Equal Status Act in 2000, which uh, extended anti-discrimination requirements to businesses and government programs. And in 2010, the Republic's Parliament enacted a civil partnership law, which provided almost all the rights of marriage to same-sex couples. And once you've crossed that that, uh, dividing line in the ground uh, of giving virtually all the rights, uh, the argument that you should go all the way and allow marriage is really irresistible. And uh, a constitutional convention was considering proposed changes to the Irish Constitution, and one change they proposed was to allow same-sex marriages. So the government responded by putting it on the ballot, and it carried. Uh, Now there has to be follow-up legislatively because the uh, amendment is not a statute. 
and the existing marriage statutes have to be modified. So the parliament is expected to pass a marriage bill uh, either in June or July, and uh, it is likely to go into effect shortly thereafter. Did you understand what the Constitution had said previously? I know I had heard something about it had a, the word family in the Irish Constitution, they felt that's why they needed a constitutional amendment. Yeah, there was some feeling that the, the existing language uh, might create an obstacle, that someone might bring a legal challenge yeah, to an act of the parliament. Without an amendment. Right, so yeah. they, they put it on the ballot. And there was some controversy about putting civil rights up to a vote in this way. But it turned out well, and in fact, it is echoing. And it is particularly echoing in Australia and uh, in Europe, in Western Europe. In Australia, proposals uh, to legalize same-sex marriage have been kicking around, usually private, always, in fact, private uh, member bills in the parliament. Uh, But for the first time, really in reaction to the Irish vote, the leader of the Labour Party, which is an opposition party in the current government in Australia, introduced a party bill. And there's been a big push to get the Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, who is a declared opponent of same-sex marriage with a lesbian sister who is a leading proponent of same-sex marriage. Uh, Tony Abbott, in fact, told one journalist he was the last person left in his family who was opposed to same-sex marriage. Uh, If he would give his party, the Liberal Party, a conscience vote or a free vote on this issue, enough Liberal members of Parliament would probably join with the opposition parties to pass it. Uh, But he has not agreed to do that, and uh, the position he has been taking is that only a bill that represents the entire parliament, not a particular party, uh, could merit a conscience vote. And so if a deal can be worked out with co-sponsorship with members of his party and members of the Labor Party and the Greens Party and other smaller parties, uh, there's a possibility that we may get legislation in Australia this year on same-sex marriage. And as we saw in Ireland, this can real I mean, the, the old rules are really out the window as to who, who might be on our side. I mean, the, uh, I was watching one local Irish television uh, footage of the day they were counting the votes, and there was Jerry Adams, the leader of Sinn Féin, who oh, most his... people will probably recognize from all the Northern right. Ireland struggles, was uh, commentating with Panty Bliss, the drag queen who sort of became the face of the right. campaign in Ireland. I mean... People you just don't expect might be on our, on, on the, the the same sex marriage side. It's, Ireland really showed right. that it, it's we've got some new friends. The the two other countries where this uh, has led to calls for more progress are Italy and Germany. Mm-hmm. In Italy, uh, the church uh, plays a very strong role, stronger than in Ireland. Uh, but the prime minister has talked about some Who's kind of civil union. Right? Yeah. He's, he's talked about some kind of social, <laughs> yeah. uh, civil union uh, legislation, perhaps this year. In Germany, the problem is that the governing coalition includes some very conservative, socially conservative uh, parties, and uh, so there is a lot of opposition. Although the press has been calling for same-sex marriage, and Merkel used to have an openly gay foreign foreign minister, their yes. secretary of state. But she personally has been opposed. Yeah. Uh, and they have something uh, akin to civil unions. I know she's Germany. the daughter of a minister. I mean, she might have... Uh, she might have religious objections. Yeah. But at, at any event, this, uh, this vote uh, received incredible press worldwide, and it has helped to build momentum for marriage equality one, in other countries. One article I read said that it, it's a real... It'll be in, the, in, in the future, it'll be seen as a turning point uh, in the international gay rights movement, that it'll always be said... 
before and after Ireland will be the, the, the turning point. Do you agree with that? Well, I think we're too close to it to say that, but yeah. uh, certainly it's a, it's a historic first, yeah. and those tend to be remembered. Yeah. Uh, we have a few other uh, brief updates on marriage equality. One is people who are uh, you know, reading the tea leaves, what's going to happen in the Supreme Court, uh, took some comfort from news reports that Justice Ginsburg had conducted a same-sex marriage ceremony uh, for uh, the uh, Michael Kahn, who is the artistic director of the Shakespeare Theater Company in Washington, and Charles Mitchum, a New York architect. And uh, it was done in a, uh, an elegant setting in Anderson House in Embassy Row in Washington, D.C., and that during the ceremony, uh, Justice Ginsburg emphasized the word constitution when she said, by the powers vested in me you know, to perform the ceremony, she specifically referenced the Constitution. So people are doing their tea leaf reading and saying, well, she's signaling how it's going to come out. We don't really know that, but it's an interesting factoid mm-hmm. to stick in there. Yeah. But in terms of, uh, of subsequent activity that we can report, there is the ongoing litigation in Alabama. And in Alabama, as our listeners may recall, uh, U.S. District Judge uh, Callie Grenad had issued a ruling last year uh, for marriage equality, and, uh, or rather earlier this year for marriage equality, and had refused to stay it, and uh, the 11th Circuit had refused to stay it, and the Supreme Court had refused to stay it. Uh, but subsequently, as it turned out, the order only pertained to the plaintiffs in the case. Uh, so they went back and they uh, tried to amend their complaint to make it into a class action and to get her to order that same-sex marriage be available to any same-sex couple in Alabama. And on May 21st, she certified the class action and ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, uh, issuing an injunction, but then she stayed her order on the grounds that everything was stayed until the Supreme Court rules, uh, and that ruling is expected on June 29th. But what this means, presumably, is that immediately after a Supreme Court ruling in favor of marriage equality, uh, one would expect Judge Grenade to uh, enforce her order. And so marriage equality would quickly become available in Alabama, although the Alabama legislature has been acting up. And uh, since we went to press on the June issue, one house of the legislature has passed a bill doing away with marriage licenses in Alabama. And as one lawyer explained in a newspaper interview, their theory was uh, because the question presented to the Supreme Court was whether states are required to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples, they could take the position that since we don't issue marriage licenses, we don't have to issue any to same-sex couples. And uh, this bill would uh, provide that anyone who wants to get married, if they are legally authorized to get married, presumably under Alabama law, can enter into a contract of marriage, which they can have recorded by the probate court. And uh, the uh, bill says that a ceremonial marriage may be required, but it doesn't specify when or by whom, or whether it has to take place before or after the contract is recorded. Uh, it's, it's really, it's kind of strange. It's a poorly drafted bill. It sounds like the bill that died in Oklahoma a few months ago to get the state out of the marriage license business on the theory that that could somehow circumvent the Supreme Court. Uh, it seems unlikely. Uh, In another development in North Carolina, the legislature approved a bill that would allow magistrates and those in their offices who normally perform marriages to refuse to perform marriages that would violate their religious beliefs. 
but I think it disqualified them performing any marriages if they were going to refuse to perform any marriages. Uh, the governor vetoed it, said that public servants who take an oath of office shouldn't be allowed an exemption from the duties of their office. Uh, one house of the legislature overrode the veto uh, a few days ago, and we're still waiting as we record this podcast to find out what the other house of the legislature will do. The bill passed by supermajorities in both houses. So if people vote the way they voted the first time around, it'll be uh, enacted over the governor's veto. And finally in Hawaii, the uh, the opponents of same-sex marriage in Hawaii, they just never say die. They just keep going. Uh, the Hawaii Supreme Court basically said enough already. They said uh, the, the legislature passed the marriage equality bill back in 2013 uh, it was authorized to do so by the state constitution, which says the legislature can decide whether same-sex couples can marry. And uh, nobody who's bringing suit now to try to uh, have that cast aside has standing to do so because people who are opposed to same-sex marriage, their rights are not in any way affected by the passage of a marriage equality law, uh, at least not in any way that isn't common with all citizens of the state uh, whenever a law is passed. But if they're citizens whose personal interests were not at stake in any way, have no standing. So a decisive uh, rejection by the Hawaii Supreme Court of a further attack on marriage equality. All right. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we will change gears and discuss the several significant rulings involving the parental rights of same-sex couples from the past month. We're back discussing several decisions from the past month that collectively show the complicated legal landscape of parental rights uh, for same-sex couples. Can you start us off with the Massachusetts case, Art? Sure. Uh, this is the, one of several cases last month where the issue of the rights of the non-biological parent are in, in play. In the Massachusetts Supreme Court case, Adoption of a Minor, which was decided on May 7th, uh, a married same-sex couple of two women had a child through donor insemination, and they're uh, both listed on uh, the birth certificate, but they wanted to do a formal adoption, joint adoption proceeding, uh, probably in excess of caution, the idea uh, being that if they traveled outside of Massachusetts, if one of them was transferred on a job or if they were just traveling for pleasure or business, uh, they wanted to be sure that no matter which state they were in, uh, the parental status would be recognized. Uh, it seems under Massachusetts law, uh, when there's a known sperm donor who is considered a biological father, even, the, even if not a legal father, they have to be given notice of any petition to adopt the child. Uh, and so they wanted to dispense with the notice. The family court judge said, you can't dispense with the notice. They appealed to the Supreme Judicial Court, and the Supreme Judicial Court said, the traditional presumption that a child born to a married woman is uh, also the legal child of her legal spouse would apply in a case involving a same-sex couple. Uh, and uh, this seems to be somewhat contrary, although not totally contrary, to a decision by the New York Appellate Division issued a few days later on, on May 20th in Patchkowski versus Patchkowski. Uh, this was a case that we commented on, I believe, last summer uh, when the lower court had ruled. Uh, this involves a lesbian couple who were living together but were not married. 
and were not in a domestic partnership at the time that one of them had a child. Uh, they were co-parenting. They had had a commitment ceremony uh, back before New York had a marriage equality. They subsequently married, but the marriage didn't do very well, and they broke up. Uh, at the time that the uh, case went to court on uh, the co-parents' uh, attempt to establish custody, uh, they there had been no divorce filing. Uh, so they weren't in court in with a divorce court trying to decide whether the uh, co-parent had standing to seek custody. This was purely a custody case, and the, uh, the family court judge out of Nassau County had said that the New York parental presumption statutes wouldn't apply. Now, it's, it's interesting. The New York parental presumption statute has a somewhat peculiar wording. It, it says, a child born of parents who at any time prior or subsequent to the birth of said child shall have entered into a ceremonial marriage shall be deemed a legitimate child of both parents for all purposes of this article, regardless of the validity of such marriage. And that's in the Family Court uh, Act. There's also a, uh, a similar provision in the Domestic Relations Act, which is worded just about the same. Uh, so under New York law, the parties don't have to be married at the time the child is born. If they subsequently marry uh, the child, uh, uh, they both would be considered uh, parents of the child. Uh, and uh, presumably this is because the legislature was very eager to avoid having children be deemed illegitimate and uh, was very concerned about the possibility that unmarried fathers would refuse to support the child. So they created a legal status. Should that carry over to a lesbian couple? Well, the family court judge didn't seem to think so and and seemed to think uh, or said as much that the fact that the women weren't married when the child was born was conclusive and that the co-parent had no standing under traditional New York precedents such as Allison D. versus Virginia M. from way back in the 1990s. Uh, this case was uh, appealed to the appellate division, and the appellate division followed the logic of the family court judge. Uh, the main argument that one could make here, uh, to the contrary, is that the Marriage Equality Act, which was passed in 2011, said that same-sex marriages are to be treated the same as different-sex marriages in New York. So it would seem that this statutory presumption statute would apply, uh, although the wording of it does say a child born of parents. And both the family court judge and the appellate division have taken the position here that uh, this child was not born of these parents because it is biologically impossible for the lesbian co-parent to have participated as a progenitor of this child. That is, two women can't procreate without sperm from someone else. Uh, so uh, the court takes the very formalistic position that this marriage is not going to be treated the same in this sense. Uh, I haven't heard yet whether there's going to be an appeal to the, uh, or an attempt to appeal to the New York Court of Appeals on this. But as we reported last summer, this points out a significant gap. And the trial judge, the family court judge in Nassau County even said so, that there are ways in which our statutes need to be revised in light of the marriage equality law and the new forms of family that we recognize in New York. Uh, we haven't done so completely, and we need some legislative reform. Uh, in this case, there is uh, the additional sad fact that the child actually has been removed from the birth mother uh, uh, under an order of protection 
uh, because uh, there were problems with her taking care of the child, and so the child is now in foster care rather than with her other mother. Uh, and a divorce petition hasn't been filed yet. I think in a divorce action, it's possible that uh, some kind of equitable arguments could be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, there have been some judges who have been receptive to that in New York. So that's the New York case. Uh, but there are some other cases. There's an Oregon case uh, in Ray, the domestic partnership of Madrone. And this involves a same-sex couple who were registered domestic partners uh, back before Oregon had marriage equality. And uh, they had a child. Uh, they entered into the domestic partnership shortly after the child was born, but they had been living together uh, And there's a subsequent breakup, of course. Uh, That's how these cases arise. Uh, When the child was born, they had uh, taken a uh, common last name that they gave to the child, and that was used on the birth certificate. So on the birth certificate, both of the women uh, are designated as parents. And uh, in this breakup now, the uh, uh, biological mother does not want the uh, co-parent to have any legal standing as a parent, Uh, The court, looking at past decisions from Oregon, decided that as a matter of equal rights, uh, equal protection, uh, if it can be shown that they would have married had they been able to at the time the child was born, there's a possibility that the co-parent could have standing to seek custody. Uh, The complicating factor in this case is that there was evidence in the record that uh, they weren't interested in marriage. Uh, The domestic partnership was uh, most likely a a convenience because of various legal rights, but there were ideological uh, statements against marriage on record by these women. So it's it's an interesting and complicated case. And then finally, uh, there's a lawsuit that was filed by Lambda Legal in Wisconsin uh, on behalf of a lesbian couple who... uh, want both of them to be listed on the birth certificate of their child. Uh, They were married in 2012 in New York. Uh, In Wisconsin, marriage equality did not become available until October 6 of 2014 when the Supreme Court denied cert in the Seventh Circuit marriage equality case. Uh, And they had their child in March of this year, 2015. Uh, When they submitted the paperwork for the birth certificate, they listed themselves as both parents of the child. But what they got back from the health department was uh, a certificate that only named the birth mother. Uh, Correspondence ensued with their attorney, but they had no satisfaction. So Lambda has filed suit on their behalf, stating that because the child was born to a married woman, under Wisconsin law, the woman's spouse should be considered the parent, and they should both be listed on the birth certificate. Uh, So it seems that... uh, This is one of the areas where we may anticipate recalcitrance from some states after a marriage equality ruling from the Supreme Court. Even if we get marriage equality, it may still be a battle. We may have a mopping up campaign afterwards to establish that these marriages should be treated the same as all other marriages for all purposes. And, of course, there's a lot of couples that just don't get married and have children. Right. uh, But that's that's true of different sex couples as well. Of course, right. Um, All right. We'll take our uh, next break, and when we return, we'll discuss a new Title VII ruling involving a gay pilot.
We're back discussing uh, a new Title VII case uh, with a gay pilot plaintiff alleging that his former employer discriminated against him in violation of Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 by misrepresenting the reason for his discharge, thus making him virtually unemployable in the industry. Uh, can you tell us what happened in the on the airline's motion to dismiss, Art? Okay, so this case uh, involves, uh, as as you said, a gay pilot. Uh, he was a second career person, uh, so he was over 40. So it's also an age discrimination case, although that part of it didn't go anywhere. Uh, he was employed by SkyWest Incorporated, a commuter airline, uh, as a pilot. And uh, he... How openly gay he was is a bit of a question here. Uh, I mean, in the the opinion by Magistrate Michael Hegarty uh, sig- suggests that uh, there was a lesbian pilot who worked for the airlines who he had talked to, uh, that he had registered his same-sex partner with the airline for flight privileges that they extend to spouses and domestic partners. Uh, but uh, it's it's unclear how openly gay he was in all respects, and certainly to his co-workers. Uh, but he, during his probationary period, he was getting good reviews for his work. He said he had no accidents. Uh, he had no indication that anything was wrong. And then suddenly he was called in and he was fired. And he thinks it's because he's gay. And he thinks that it's because he's older and he thinks there's just sort of prejudice against him. So he brings a lawsuit under Title VII and the Age Discrimination Act, claiming uh, that his discharge was because of his sexual orientation and his age. And, of course, Title VII does not, on its face, cover sexual orientation. So he has to come within one of the theories that's been recognized in certain cases by federal judges and has been suggested by the EEOC as well of using gender stereotyping theory. Uh, in order to make his claim under Title VII. And the gender stereotyping theory uh, is derived from a 1989 decision by the Supreme Court, Price Waterhouse uh, versus Hopkins, which involved a woman who was a candidate for partnership at Price Waterhouse, the big accounting firm, which now has some different name as a result of subsequent mergers and combinations. But at the time, big firm, hundreds of partners, only a handful of women partners. Uh, She was turned down for partnership, and in the subsequent litigation, she alleged that it was because she failed to conform to gender stereotypes, that she was too butch, too macho, too foul-mouthed. A partner in the Washington office where she worked told her she had to uh, start uh, dressing more femininely and uh, start wearing makeup and jewelry. Uh, one of the partners who voted against her uh, on the comment form wrote, needs a course in charm school. So the Supreme Court in that case said that if someone encounters discrimination because of their failure to conform to stereotypes about their sex, uh, that could be a form of sex discrimination. And uh, Congress, in enacting Title VII, intended to attack stereotypes that serve as barriers to equal opportunity. Since that case, some lower federal courts have accepted discrimination claims by gay plaintiffs who can allege some sort of a credible gender stereotyping theory, that they encountered discrimination not just because of their sexual orientation, because of how they expressed it. 
because of how they behaved, because of how other people reacted to how they behaved. It varies from case to case. So in this case, uh, evidently the uh, discharge aspect of the case fell out at a rather early point uh, on a prior motion uh, that is just referred to in Judge Hegarty's decision. Uh, and what was left at the time that this motion to dismiss was being ruled on was his claim that he was discriminated against because when he applied to other airlines, uh, someone who has worked for an airline, if they apply to a new airline for a job, uh, they're supposed to authorize or they have to authorize their prior employer to release uh, personnel records. And he first discovered when he applied to another airline that they had stated on the uh, personnel form performance inability and ineligible for rehire. And he feels that that is totally inaccurate, that they never complained to him about his performance at all. And uh, this sort of blackballs him in the industry. He was told as much by uh, recruiters. With a termination like that, one is quoted in the opinion, we're not to take you, or words to that effect. Uh, so he sued not just for the discharge but for uh, the statements made about him, which he said were discriminatory under Title VII. And SkyWest defended uh, on two grounds. First, they said uh, discrimination based on sexual orientation, which is his theory here, is not covered by Title VII. And secondly, they said what we said on the personnel forms is about a former employee, not a current employee, so that's not covered by Title VII either. And they were re rebuffed by Judge Hegarty on both points, on the, uh, on the uh, issue of uh, discrimination against someone who's gay under Title VII. He said uh, the allegations of his complaint are sufficient to withstand a motion to dismiss on the gender stereotyping theory. And uh, the judge identified particular allegations. One was that other male pilots... Uh, engaged in boasting about their sexual exploits with women and making uh, fag jokes and things of that sort. Uh, when they had male flight attendants, they uh, referred to them as the little faggots who bring our coffee, etc., etc. And it seems that Mr. Deneff, the pilot, uh, the plaintiff in this case, did not join in on that. He was uh, rather conspicuously abstained from engaging in that kind of conversation. Uh, he didn't make jokes about gays the way other male pilots did. Uh, he designated his male domestic partner for flight privileges. And uh, as noted, he actually traveled on flights with his partner and people saw him, saw them show up together. Uh, so those allegations were sufficient in the eyes of Judge Hegarty to meet the sex stereotyping theory, at least for purposes of surviving a motion to dismiss. Rather interestingly, I think this is the broadest view of sex stereotyping that I've seen in a decision. Uh, there was also, of course, the issue of whether statements they were making about a former employee could be actionable under Title VII. And the judge said, well, they certainly could because they will affect his terms and conditions of employment in terms of his future employment. And uh, so the judge accepted uh, both the theory that an adverse job recommendation could give rise to a claim under Title VII and that uh, basically someone who... Uh, refuses to engage in the kind of macho talk that's common among male airline pilots, uh, has departed from gender stereotypes sufficiently to make a Title VII claim if he subsequently suffers an adverse employment action.
Rather interesting. Uh, uh, there, there have been news reports. In fact, there, there was a news report within the past few weeks uh, that the EEOC is contemplating uh, filing some cases to push the gender stereotyping theory in sexual orientation uh, claims. They have filed some cases now in gender identity claims uh, to try to establish some federal precedents there. And uh, I think it was last we, last we month. Did. We, we talked re- about it last month. We reported about uh, refusal, a denial of a motion to dismiss in one of those cases. All right. Uh, we'll take our final break, and when we return, we will discuss a denial of a habeas corpus uh, petition handed down to an Idaho prisoner, potentially in prison for 44 years for HIV exposure. All right, we are back discussing the case of Mubita versus Blades. Uh, I wrote this article this month. Uh, this is a situation out in Idaho. There was uh, a Zambian immigrant. His name was is Kane Mubita. Uh, in 2001, he immigrated to Idaho. Uh, and as part of that uh, move, he had to take a physical. Uh, and basically, uh, and at that physical, he tested negative for HIV. Um, however, two tests later that year found him to be HIV positive. He was sort of told this directly uh, and followed up by um, requesting HIV-related services from the local public health department. And those services required him to sign forms attesting to the fact that he was HIV positive. Um, shortly thereafter, in 2005, uh, there was an anonymous tip to the local prosecutor uh, in Idaho that a a male was having sex with uh, two women without informing them of his HIV-positive status. Now, the reason this sort of thing would be reported to the local prosecutor is because Idaho has an HIV exposure statute, uh, which is worded as follows. Any person who exposes another in any manner with the intent to infect or knowing that he or she is or has been afflicted with AIDS or other manifestations of HIV infection who transfers or attempts to transfer any of his or her body fluid to another person is guilty of a felony and shall be punished by imprisonment in the state prison for a period not to exceed 15 years. Uh, This was signed into law in 1988 and has not been amended since then. And it's got some really, really, as you can uh, just heard, some really sort of broad language there that doesn't... uh, doesn't take into account whether you actually give someone HIV or whether you are actually infectious yourself. Um, so anyway, the, an investigation was under undertaken, uh, and they actually talked to 13 potential victims, uh, or I guess sexual partners of Mr. Mubita. Uh, he was then charged with and then convicted of 11 counts of violating uh, this Idaho statute, which is Section 39608 of the Idaho Code. Uh, he received consecutive sentences of four months to four years for each count, which could uh, end up being 44 years total. So he ended up uh, appealing all the way to the state Supreme Court, uh, making several arguments, including that his conduct fell outside the reach of the statute in some of the instances because he'd only performed oral sex uh, with his partner. Uh, the Idaho Supreme Court rejected all of his arguments uh, in a 2008 uh, decision we reported on. I, I had checked we reported on it back in 2008. 
Uh, so he then decided to try federal court to see if that could um, offer him some relief, and he filed a habeas corpus petition. Now, uh, the federal habeas corpus statute uh, sharply limits uh, relief uh, from in, to instances where a state court's adjudica- excuse me, adjudication uh, results in a decision that was contrary to or involved in unreasonable application of clearly established federal law as determined by the Supreme Court. Uh, so Mr. Mubita here made an argument about one of the jury instructions. Um, basically, there's an affirmative defense uh, in Idaho in this situation, uh, which allows for um, a defendant to say that he had been advised by a, a licensed physician that he was not infectious. And there was some, uh, there was an issue of that involved here. As I mentioned, his first uh, HIV test was negative. Um, so he tried to um, make this argument, but the, the court changed the wording a little bit on, uh, on the affirmative defense. And they basically uh, said this, In deciding upon the reasonableness of the defendant's beliefs, you should determine what an ordinary and reasonable person might have concluded from all the facts and circumstances which the evidence shows existed at that time. Uh, they did follow that up, though, with the burden is on the state to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant knew he was infectious at the time the attempted transfer of bodily fluid occurred. If there is a reasonable doubt whether the defendant knew he was infectious, you must find the defendant not guilty. So Mr. Mubita argued uh, that the court in that instruction shifted the burden of proof to himself uh, to, to sort of show that he had a reasonable belief uh, that a licensed physician had told him, uh, the defendant, that he was not infectious. He, he claimed that the way that the trial judge worded uh, the instruction to the jury resulted in reducing the state's burden of proof and shifting the burden of persuasion uh, on an es- essential element of the crime uh, to him. And there's sort of a clear line of Supreme Court cases uh, that says due process requires that the prosecutor in a criminal case prove each element of a crime uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. So he, uh, this was his argument of the Supreme Court uh, case that was his adjudication was contrary to. Yeah, well, you know, the problem he runs into here, of course, is that the statute itself doesn't require a showing that someone's infectious. They merely require a showing that he has HIV. Yeah. Uh, and that he transfers or attempts to transfer any of his or her body fluid to another person, yeah. regardless of whether he intends to infect them, regardless of whether he's actually contagious. And we know that if someone is on uh, antiretroviral therapy these days, there's a good chance they're not contagious. Yeah. Their uh, viral load is, is uh, so low, uh, which the current medications make possible. Of course, yeah. we don't know any of this because... None of this had to be uh, shown or was considered relevant under the statute. So I think the problem is the statute itself uh, embodies uh, outmoded information and outmoded assumptions about uh, risk. And even includes uh, saliva, which, you know... Any bodily fluid. Which uh, in 1988, people may have been scared that that was how HIV is transmitted, but we know today that it really isn't. In other words, this is just one of a, of a litany of unfortunate cases from around the country showing that the uh, laws that were amended or enacted uh, back in the 1980s in response to the AIDS epidemic by many states need some revision. Yeah. Uh, 
litigation in Iowa led to some revision yeah. of the statute there. Uh, I haven't heard anything about any moves on in Idaho to revise their statute. Um, so anyway, basically the judge here, Chief Judge Lynn, uh, B. Lynn Windmill, who is the chief judge of the U.S. District Court for the District of Idaho, uh, rebuffed Mr. Mubita and said that the jury instruction wording only explained the affirmative defense and did not require the, de the defendant to prove that he did not know his HIV status. Uh, basically says uh, the instruction did not diminish the state's burden, did not imply that an element could be omitted, did not create a presumption as to an element, and did not shift to the defendant the burden of persuasion on an essential element. Uh, he made some other sort of uh, less significant claims involving the confrontation clause, uh, a p possible con confrontation clause violation, um, some other issues involving whether he was should have had an interpreter at his trial, uh, should have been allowed to testify, and whether there should have been a change of venue. Uh, the judge said on all those counts, uh, he most of those counts he said he couldn't even look at because of the uh, procedural default rule. But at the end of the opinion, he said there's ample testimony that he was he knew his HIV status, uh, that he understood he was positive, and that he um, received many government benefits as a result of his HIV status. So uh, he didn't see any sort of evidentiary problem with this with this conviction. Um, so, well, so we, in in Idaho, it remains a crime to have sex while you're HIV positive. Yeah. Well, I guess you you can tell you have to tell your partner is the way to avoid that. So it's mm -hmm. it, if you if you tell someone, although does the statute create a a defense of informed consent? Yes, but the of course in a lot of these situations you don't ha sign a consent form before you have sex, and it becomes a he said she said, you yeah. know, um, or a he said he said. Right, right, right. Um, so that's that case. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, I mentioned to Art before we start recording, we expect to do a post-Supreme Court decision podcast, maybe before another issue of Law Notes comes out. Uh, so look forward to that at probably the end of the month, beginning of July. Thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you later this summer.